0: Hello and welcome to the Access of Space, Defense, and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research, breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space, defense, and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episodes 7 and 8, Impact of Decentralization of Global Power. To understand this complex landscape of international affairs and how the decentralization of power occurs in the modern world, we have today with us expert uh, of the international affairs, uh, David Andelman. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, I'm It's a great pleasure.
0: Likewise, thank you very much for joining us today. As we'll be taking a deep dive into this topic, can you please provide us a brief outlook of your journey in the international affairs and how did you end up in this sector from other profession? So in general, yeah, please feel free to tell a complete outlook of your journey. Well,
1: I've been a um, basically a journalist, um, a commentator for most of my life. That's um, nearly 50 years now. And uh, I've uh, been uh, with the New York Times in Asia and Eastern Europe as Bureau Chief. Uh, I followed with uh, CBS News as Chief Paris Correspondent for a number of years. I currently, um, well, in between, I also was the editor in chief of World Policy Journal and an executive editor at Forbes. Um, I write a column now for CNN Opinion, and I have a a marvelous Substack page, which I encourage everybody to join. It's free, so the price is right. It's called Andelman Unleashed, A N D E L M A N, Unleashed. And, um, you know, and from time to time, I appear on uh, very distinguished podcasts such as yours, Amkar.
0: Thank you very much, David. Uh, It's it's an honor to have you on the podcast because I have been following your uh, thought leadership pieces since past one year almost. So yeah, finally glad to have you here. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, as we'll be taking a deep dive into the topic. So prior to that, as we have a very broad segment of audience from the international affairs and related field uh, of space and defense as well. So can you tell us what is decentralization of global power and how it impacts the international relations?
1: Well, decentralization is, is very interesting. Um, you know, there is still, uh, unfortunately, basically two superpowers right now. There's the United States and there's China. But one time, of course, there was Russia as well. Russia is no longer a superpower. But in terms of decentralization, um, you know, there are other loci that are very becoming along that are very important, I think, in the. In the global power structure and, and we have to look at some of these one of these particularly is india which um in april the number the date i've, I've been seeing bruited about is april 14th india is going to pass the, uh china as the single most populous country in the world and, and the number one power in many respects in terms of population at least that is going to be a, a major decentralization node if you will because a lot of companies that have been um you know, basically doing business in, uh, in China, global companies are going to start looking elsewhere because China's um, working population is shrinking. Its population is shrinking, its working age population is shrinking dramatically. And one of these places they'll be going is India. They're going to other places as well. They're going to Vietnam, they're going to the Philippines, they're going to various places in, um, um, some places in Latin America even, and in Africa. So it's quite clear that there is a decentralization in terms of production, in terms of power that's interesting to see and that's that's a trajectory we're going to have to be following and as i say india is going to be playing an important role in that
0: all right that's that's quite interesting i think you already mentioned some of the factors uh, about the decentralization of global power uh, but still from your perspective what are the uh, key factors that are playing a role in the decentralization of global power for, especially looking at the current landscape landscape of geopolitics and the conflicts that we are observing at the moment here in europe as well
1: well military is is one of the key uh, issues uh, right now and and of course we've seen um, the war in in um, in ukraine uh, that that's been a, a a huge problem in terms of um, in terms of, of, of basically fragmenting uh, the military structure russia is not able to any longer proceed on this war and, and to continue to pursue it without outside help So it's turning to places like Iran, to a degree, China, and so on. Uh, Ukraine equally is unable to match Russia domestically in terms of its um, military capacity, in terms of its um, ability to um, either fund or produce the kind of material that's necessary to uh, basically carry on a war against a a country that's about three times its size in terms of population, and and multiple times its size in terms of its uh, total land area. So it has had to go to a number of other uh, places, you know the major democracies, obviously in the West, the British, the Americans, the Germans, the French, um, and 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 that's when um, that's that's what. In fact, there are there are over twenty-seven countries right now that are on a regular basis supplying um, the kinds of material that's necessary for Ukraine to continue to pursue its war um, or its defense of its country. I should say. Um, so I think in terms of that kind of decentralization, that's very important. There's an equally important decentralization in terms of finance and money. Uh, the um, the the African countries, in particular, I've been following in, in great in great detail, and, and the sub-Saharan African African countries, in particular, and and there we're seeing um, you know the traditional funders of of, of those countries, basically um, the Russians and the Chinese. They they are the ones that have really held Africa in its in its in its, in its grip. The United States has been trying to come along and and, and do more work in Af- with African countries, with limited success. The French are actually pulling out a number of African countries and and uh, abandoning them simply because it's become too violent a place for them to uh, continue to pursue their activities. Um, I'm thinking particularly in the Sahel. So, you know, there are there are a lot of there are a lot of um, questions of decentralization. It, it's military. It's political. It's uh, it's economic. There's no doubt about that.
0: That's 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 really an interesting perspective, I would say, but uh recently on this uh, uh your previous uh, I think newsletters as well that I have read, I think our audiences definitely will try to subscribe to that as well. Uh, but from that perspective and the answer that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned a key point, the word of a country the like Iran. So Iran at the moment is kind of an extended arm of Russia, we can say. So do you have any thoughts to that, towards that? Because the next question that we'll be uh, diving into is related to Russia, Ukraine.
1: Well, they, there's no question that um, Iran is supporting the, the Russian uh, uh, pro- process in the war um, in, in against Ukraine, particularly in terms of drones, other military uh, equipment, and so on. There's some interest in watching Iran very closely in terms of particularly in terms of drones just to find out just how they are being able to produce so many drones for russia obviously the russians are helping them do this they're helping them obtain material they're helping their funding and so on this is um my sources are telling me that this industry is really ballooning in in iran and may very well go beyond um simply supplying russia to other other regions of the world north africa africa sub-saharan africa um, perhaps even parts of Asia and Latin America. So that's something to be very. We, we should be very concerned about um, Iran essentially exporting its revolution, if you will, uh, even beyond its immediate um, boundaries and its immediate uh, neighbors, such as um, Syria and Lebanon, where it's been particularly active, and obviously its hostility toward Israel. So Iran is becoming a a, a major, a potentially major force in in terms of. Uh, Encouraging unrest and, and military instability in, in other parts of the world. I think it's particularly interesting that um, uh, Iran right now is having its own many of its own problems. Um, it had um, it had a lot of problems in terms of um, uh, unrest. There's a considerable civil unrest there now. Um, the way it controls its people, a- and um, I think it's going to have to really monitor that very carefully. And it's going to be interesting to see how that affects its its behavior especially its global and international behavior finally there's the question of the Iranian um uh, nuclear power uh, it's quite clear that Iran is is producing very rapidly the producing approaching very rapidly the ability to produce some kind of a, a nuclear a device whether it will be a deliverable nuclear device is another question but it's already apparently raised it's um ability to um process uranium to a 60 percent purity which is a substantial percentage of the way there to its um, uh, uranium uh, that is able to um, um, be a portion of a, uh, a nuclear device, a, a weapon. So um, that's something we need to watch carefully. There are no restraints yeah. that we can see on their ability to do this, and that that's also a concern.
0: All right. Yeah, uh, this is a very important point. I think uh, the destabilization. So, taking the context of Russia-Ukraine conflict. Do you believe it will destabilize the ground for cooperation among European nations, and to what extent?
1: There are there are all kinds of issues involving European nations. There's no doubt about that. It was a very <laughs> interesting. I, I I just noticed a very yes. interesting comment from um um Georgia Maloney, who's the new um uh you know sort of extreme right wing um uh prime minister in, in Italy. She was uh, particularly miffed. That um, Emmanuel Macron and um, uh, Olaf Scholz, the uh, Chancellor of um, Germany, um, um, Emmanuel Macron being the President of France, they had dinner last night at the Elysee Palace in in, um, in Paris with uh, Zelensky, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, and they talked about um, the next the next the next uh, military needs of the Ukrainians, which is um, um, which is um, uh, aircraft and and uh, jet, jet jet fighters, particularly the F sixteen uh, category level, she was upset that she wasn't included in that. Well, that's it's kind of not surprising because she has really exhibited some considerable um, sympathies with with Putin and, and Russia. Um, and nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, this is not this was not a good okay. sign that <laughs> she's coming up right now and saying that. So,
0: yeah, yeah. and just a follow up question on this uh, segment only. In the recent times, uh, we have seen countries like Austria taking an independent stand of neutrality. Mm-hmm. So do you believe this situation will replicate in the future, especially in the European Union? I think
1: Austria, Austria, the Austrian people want very much to remain um, a neutral, not, perhaps not as neutral in, in some respects as Switzerland, but um, certainly at one of the major neutral, neutral powers in Europe. What's interesting is whether the electoral landscape will allow that. There have been some really strong um, indications that uh, the, the right wing in Austria is becoming uh, increasingly uh, attractive to the electorate, um, and they've had some success in um, in elections. Um, the right wing, of course, would be much more closely uh, inclined to ally with, um, with with Russia and and the the Kremlin, Kremlin forces. So um, we'll be watching that very closely. There's no doubt. Um, when I was based in um, Eastern and Central Europe, um, it was just the opposite. You know. Um, uh, the Bruno Kreisky was the uh, the chancellor that I knew the best, and I had very close relations with him. He was a, he was a great source when I was with the New York Times in that part of the world. Um, Kreisky was a was a socialist, um, but still no friend of, of Russia, I must say, even though socialism and communism were not, not that far distant, especially in those times. But but it's always Austria has always tried to walk a very fine line between um, east and west. Uh, geographically, they're poised between. They were poised between the Warsaw Pact and NATO and uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And they still kind of teeter on that line. It's, very, it's a very delicate uh, position that they've always had. And I think that the Austrian people really want to continue to maintain. So we'll have to see where it goes in the future. But as I say, some of the um, power of the of the, the right wing in Austria that's been, um, uh, that's been um, resurgent um, is it, a bit troubling.
0: All right. Yeah. I- I must say that you hit the right target, uh, uh, you know, bringing up this point that Europe. There are a lot of problems in European Union at the moment. Uh, so, I, I, from my perspective, I personally feel that you know, the a huge continent like this, you know, which is like highly uh, sizable in resources as well, they should have their independent stance. So, do you think Europe highly needs to focus on an independent union rather than aligning itself? With alliances, or entering into new alliances, or forging new alliances, especially with respect to critical decision-making process in international relations.
1: Well, that's, that you raise a very, very interesting point. Um, and, and in fact, during the midway through the uh, the Trump years, um, Donald Trump's uh, disastrous, catastrophic administration in the United States. Um, sorry, but I'm revealing some of my uh, my, my political. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, no I problem. <laughs> I try to maintain my objectivity when it comes to Trump. It's very difficult. Um, At any rate, um, around that time, um, Emmanuel Macron proposed a a European defense force. And and the idea was that um, Europe should have its own means of defending itself and not rely entirely on NATO. Of course, in those days, that was when Trump was considering withdrawing from NATO even or threatening to withdraw if NATO um, NATO nations didn't substantially increase their defense uh, expenditures and, and so on. That obviously has died down since the um, since Trump left office, although there are many in Europe that still worry that, um, in fact, Joe Biden is is merely an interregnum and that, um, you know, a Trump or a Trump style presidency could reassert itself in the future um, with catastrophic consequences. Nevertheless, um, it seems to me that um, Europe is there are forces within Europe that really are anxious to develop an independent um, political, military um you know force that is independent of the united states and we can chart europe's so europe can chart its future more effectively and i think that um frankly the um some of the um um components of the uh, uh biden's um inflation reduction Act, the ira so-called ira that um has um uh you know it's, it's it's really it's 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 suggested to european companies that um uh the united states is going to subsidize. Um, uh, important segments of its uh, industry to the detriment of um, uh, of Europe of their European competitors, and, and that has not gone down very well at all in um, uh, in Europe. So Europe, uh, there is some incentive in Europe to really you know find a way of of going its own way in, in so many respects that um, uh, really could be very important, very significant going forward.
0: Yes, I expected uh, of course uh, you know this perspective from you, but I wanted to you know extend a little bit because. Uh, I keep on reading your thought leadership piece. And yeah, it's finally understandable now uh, about uh, the extended perspective of yours. So the pow- power dynamics in the international relations have been finally aligned with the United States and other allied nations. But due to the decentralization of power, the allied nations are restructuring their international relations. So do you think this has also urged the United States to keep a close eye on the Indo-Pacific.
1: Oh, certainly, the, the Indo-Pacific region is very important, uh, and, and it's a very it's a very dangerous region right now in terms of um, a very delicate, also a very delicate uh, region. I mean, this whole Chinese balloon issue is um, is critical. I'm sure we're going to get around to talking to that eventually. We'll as well, bring it up now. <laughs> but um, yes, oh, there's there's no doubt that China look China is trying to reassert itself as the leading nation in the world, or certainly one of the two leading nations in the world. At once. The kind of respect that comes from strength and power. And it's been, yeah. it's had, it's had a great deal of difficulty in, in asserting that because it has not had a real substantial blue water navy uh, or air force able to project its power beyond the um, the Asian uh, mainland. And, and now it's beginning to have that ability. And, and I think that this, this balloon issue is, is really, really in, in many respects central to all of that. Um, it's central to understanding that the the Chinese want to be taken seriously. That they want to show that they uh, that, that they have a very good sense of of, of how things are playing in in um, in other parts of the world. They want to understand how the American system, uh, military structure, uh, functions, and that's one of the reasons for sending a balloon like that over. I mean, it's a crazy idea. They have four hundred ninety nine satellites in the skies. You would think we would to be able to really um, have a pretty good sense of what's going on on the ground without sending a you know a a a, a, a highly visible balloon over the yes was shot down over the united states <laughs> so so um yeah but yeah. but it's all part of that same chinese um a need to be seen and taken seriously and also to project its power you know i'm i'm um i've really followed some uh, some just to some great extent uh, particularly since my last book um a red line in the sand diplomacy strategy in the history of wars that might still happen and i talk about all of the new red line networks that uh, the chinese are setting up particularly a whole web of them in the south china sea around these little islands that they've fortified and and um, and and um, and, and um, armed up um, and also in terms of the what, what they call the um, the daisy chain of uh, chinese military bases around the indian ocean and, and across yes. to the, uh, the east east coast of, of africa uh, china wants to become wants to be seen as as important a global power as the United States on a par with the United States and, and that's going to yes. result in some i think some some real um some confrontations going forward that are, are not going to be um, uh, not, not going very going to be very salubrious
0: The conversations from episode seven will be further continued into episode eight so I kindly request you to move towards episode eight I hope You enjoy listening to the podcast and especially this episode. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.